0: Hi, I'm Tyra G., your host of Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. Welcome again to our virtual global gathering of phenomenal listeners. Yes, you, fearsome and generous, humble and honest, in pursuit of new possibilities and purpose. Every week, we meet at the table for an hour to experience, educate, encourage, and empower each other through our joys. And yes, some lessons learned. We share topics that tradition tells us there's some things we just don't talk about. But here, here we live beyond the judgment and the wreckage. We share some aha moments and stories that have been left in our pockets for too long. And every week, we start right where we are. Although many of your voices will speak light into darkness, there is no insignificant person around this table. However, you must come dressed in your authentic inner awesome, believing that impossible is merely a word. You're listening to Radio Fairfax, Fairfax, Virginia, on your TV, computer, or mobile device. And we are webcasts worldwide on the Internet at www.radiofairfax.org every Saturday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. No worries if you miss us. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, Courtney Nero, for composing and performing our Frankly Speaking theme song. And for Naming It, I'm Listening. We set the table this week with the following common thoughts, rendered by life coach and award-winning author, Yana Vonsant, in her book, written in 2000, entitled, Until Today. And I quote, The greatest service I can offer is accepting the value and importance of who I am and where I am in life. You are exactly who you are because you are important. Everything you are is valuable and important. You are important to yourself and to everyone else. If you are not exactly who you are, somebody very important will be missing from the experience of life. You're exactly where you are because all that you have to give and receive is right where you are right now. Where you are is valuable and important. Everything you know is needed right now where you are. Everything you can do is doable right where you are. If you're over here, over there, there would be a big void right where you are now. You have gone through all you have gone through because of who you are, because of what you needed to know. Everything you have done and been through is valuable and important. In order to be who you are, to know what you know, to be where you are in this moment, you need to go through what you went through. Hang in there with me. Who you are, where you are, what you know gives you value. It either makes your life important or discounts the importance of your life. How much you believe in who you are, serve where you are and use what you know can make a very big difference in who you become, where you go, and what you do when you get to the next place. Now until today, you may have resisted, ignored, denied, or underestimated the importance and value of who you are, where you are and what you know but just for today don't do that today I want you to think I am devoted to accepting the value and importance of every aspect of my life as it is now repeat that after me today I am devoted to accepting the value and importance of every aspect Of my life as it is right now. The women we are celebrating this week, this month, this year owned who they were, why they were, what they knew and believed across generations to establish our position as equals at the ballot box and more. This year We celebrate 100 years, the anniversary of the 19th Amendment and women's right to vote. To commemorate buildings and landmarks across the country, lift up in purple and gold, the colors of the American women's suffragette movement, on August 25th, excuse me, August 26th, 2020, for the Women's Suffrage Centennial Commission's nationwide Forward Into Light campaign, named in honor of the historic suffrage slogan, which was, Forward Through the Darkness, Forward Into Light. Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. we'll share stories throughout the year celebrating women upon whose shoulders we stand today, stories that will leave tattoos on our hearts and smiles in our spirits. However, this week there's something I must do. I must say a public goodbye and thank you to one of my favorite sheroes, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I'm going to quote some thoughts that are not in the mainstream of the news paying tribute to her. It's taken from an interview some years ago, a few years ago, on NPR, written by a great friend of hers and confidant, Nina Totenberg. It shares the lighter side of notorious RBG. It's titled, An 85-Pound Gourmand. And I quote, she loved her wine confined to one glass a day she rebelled when my husband David brought her a giant glass filled halfway up to break fast on Yom Kippur David she instructed fill it up to the top she had a wonderful sense of humor when she spiked a high fever in July and her doctor told her she had to go to Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. Right away, her response was, well, they have good crab cakes there. Ruth loved food. She may have been 85 pounds soaking wet toward the end of her life, but she loved to eat slowly, very slowly. Would God help you if you tried to take her plate away before she had eaten every last morsel of food on the plate? Of course, she'd been spoiled by the love of her life, her husband, Marty, the best gourmet chef. My husband and her daughter Jane and granddaughter Clara tried to live up to his tradition, but nobody was quite like Marty. Anyone reading this will know from my pieces and from the documentary, RBG, about the last poignant letter. Marty wrote to her at the end of her 56 years with him. Before the movie, though, I asked her to bring the letter with her to an interview we were taping. It was the last thing I asked of her that day. It was the only time I ever asked her, and I saw her cry. Check out the documentary for this poignant moment. The next paragraph is called an inspiration. Ruth really did love being notorious RBG. At the opera when her tiny figure wrapped a coat, wrapped in a coat, and Babushka would enter the Kennedy Center Opera House from a side entrance, I don't know why, but people would see her and the roar would begin soon followed by a standing ovation and a loud cheering And amid COVID-19 pandemic, she took to wearing a mask with her tiny face printed on it. So she was an inspiration to so many women, especially young women. She often would come to our twice a year big parties attended by lots of doctor friends, journalists, and lawyers. She always came late when she knew the crowd would have thinned to a relative few, but there always was a bunch of surgical residents and a few of my former interns still there. It was such an amazing thing to see how they stood back in awe of her. As I chatted with her and as she ate undisturbed by the fact that we had 15 or so listeners, even then, she was, in a sense, a performer. Her memory was so prodigious. At one party, we were talking about how she had met actor Martin Sheen. They were in the same natural birth class. He and his wife, she and Marty, about 50 years or so early, she recalled that he was in his first Broadway play back then, and she paused to remember the name. Ah, the subject was roses. Well, my husband couldn't believe it, and he Googled it on the spot. As usual, she was right. Let's close this brief tribute and hear a little bit from her words in her own voice.
1: Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has made her life an open book. The book is called My Own Words, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It features selections of her writings dating back to age 13 when she edited a school paper. It includes her best-known court opinions as well. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg reports on the 83-year-old justice known inside the court and actually outside as well as RBG. The original plan was to have this volume come out after Ginsburg's authorized biography was published, but as the justice told me last month...
2: My uh, biographers would like to have my time at the court almost complete before they finish the book we decided last October to flip the order.
1: Is that your way of saying you don't intend to retire anytime soon?
2: I will retire when it's time and when is it time? When I can't do the job full steam.
1: To read these pieces is to view the span of a professional career that's profoundly changed the lives of American women, their families, their schools, and their workplaces. In interviews with the Justice, I've heard many of her stories over the years. I've come to call them RBG's greatest hits. One of them is the advice her mother-in-law gave her on her wedding day. She took me
2: aside and said, Dear, I want you to know the secret of a happy marriage. Every now and then, it helps to be a little deaf. And with that, she handed me a pair of earplugs.
1: It's advice, says the justice, that served her well not only with her husband, Marty Ginsburg, but with her fellow justices. In law school, when Marty was diagnosed with testicular cancer, she learned that sleep was relatively unnecessary. She had to take care of him, her 2-year-old daughter, and do her own studying. Because the daily radiation treatments made Marty too sick to eat during the day, dinner was between midnight and two.
2: My bad hamburger, usually. And then he would dictate to me his senior paper. And then he'd go back to sleep, and it was about two o'clock. Then I'd take out the books and start reading what I needed to read to be prepared for classes the next
1: day. Though she graduated from law school, tied for first in her class, she couldn't find a job. Law firms were loath to hire a woman, much less a mother. She would go on to a stellar academic career, hiding her second pregnancy to win tenure, and founded the ACLU Women's Project. For more than a decade, she briefed and argued dozens of sex discrimination cases, persuading the courts to treat men and women the same way under the law. Before her first Supreme Court appearance in 1973, a nervous Ginsburg skipped lunch for fear she would throw up at the afternoon argument. But in the tape, available on the OIA website, she sounds not skittish, but steely. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, the legislative judgment in both derives from the same stereotype. In her 30s and 40s, Ginsburg often was exasperated by demands from school administrators that she come to discuss her son's alleged misbehavior. Finally, there came a day when she'd had enough. I was
2: very weary. i stayed up all night the night before. And I said to the principal, this child
1: has two parents. Please alternate <laughs> that hearty laugh in the background was Justice Antonin Scalia, often Ginsburg's ideological opposite on the Supreme Court. He was such a good friend, says Ginsburg, because in the words of Who Framed Roger Rabbit
2: He had an extraordinary ability to make me laugh. We liked each other, our styles were very different
1: but we both labored over our opinions. A couple of years ago, I interviewed the two of them for the Smithsonian Associates, and all aspects of their friendship were on display. They teased each other, told admiring stories about each other, and they fought, intelligently, respectfully, and adamantly. Here's a fragment of their discussion about whether the Constitution is a living document.
3: If it is subject to whimsical change by five out of nine votes on the Supreme Court who decide that it ought to mean something different from what the people voted on when they, when they ratified
2: the provision of the Constitution. That is not a living Constitution. Well, you said the people. Think of our Constitution in 1787. We, the people, the people who were part of the political community, were white, property-owning men. Very mm. select constituency. So I have always said that I think the genius of our Constitution is that over now more than two centuries, this notion of who counts
1: has become ever more inclusive. Ginsburg was, of course, the second woman to serve on the court, and her other great friend among the justices was the first woman, Reagan appointee Sandra Day O'Connor. It was because of O'Connor's generosity, says Ginsburg, that as a very junior justice, she got to write the court's historic opinion declaring that the all male state sponsored Virginia Military Institute could not exclude qualified women. Originally, the opinion was assigned to O'Connor.
2: But, Justice O'Connor, her response was, Ruth should write this opinion.
1: For sixty of her years on this earth, Ruth Ginsburg's biggest booster, best pal, and heartthrob was her husband, Marty, who promoted her at every turn, teased her incessantly, and prodded her back to work after both of her bouts with cancer. In 2010, though, it was Marty who was mortally ill, and as she packed up his things at the hospital, preparing to take him home to die, she found a handwritten note he'd drafted.
2: My dearest Ruth, I have admired and loved you almost since the day we first met at Cornell. The time has come for me to toughen out or to take leave of life, because the loss of quality now simply overwhelms. I hope you will support where I come out, but I understand you may not. I will not love you a jot
1: less. I have known Ruth Bader Ginsburg for some 40 years and that reading at my request this summer when I interviewed her for the Academy of Achievement was the first time I ever saw her cry. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington.
0: Every time I hear RBG talk in the slow, deliberate, thoughtful way, I get chills. She was such a giant, and a woman of certain age, like myself, and being a woman of color, I respect and admire how she helped to advance, for all of us, a special place in this United States. I want to play my favorite classical song, just a bit of it, for her now, as I say, Thank you, notorious RVG. Goodbye for now, gracious and lovely lady. This one is for you. You may recognize that as Claire de Lune by Claude Debussy. It's one of my most favorite. Um, we're going to change up the mood because we're going to be celebrating the women on whose shoulders we are standing. Listen up.
4: Now it's just as plain as my old hat, as plain as plain can be. That if the women want the vote, they'll get no help from me. Not from Joe, not
5: from Joe, if he knows it. Oh, my goodness. Rosario, what on earth was that? That's a song called Winning the Vote, written back in 1912. Oh, boy. It's not my favorite. <laughs> I know, I know. But listen, this is why we've got to tell this story. That's right. The story of women's suffrage. Which really just means our right to vote. Because believe it or not, it's turning 100.
6: It. Not from Joseph. No, All right, Joe, no, we'll no. take it from not here.
5: From I'm Retta. And I'm Rosario Dawson. And we're bringing you a new podcast called And Nothing Less. Over the next seven episodes, we're going to tell the story of the over 70-year fight for women's rights, leading up to the victory of ratifying the 19th Amendment.
3: And just in case you forgot, it states that the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account
5: of sex. And that happened just 100 years ago. So we're going to tell the story we wish we had been told. The history you never learned in school, but should have. Stories about radical women who made change, and those behind the scenes who inspired it. We'll talk about some of the biggest myths. There is no constitutional
3: right to vote. The big banner-waving moments.
4: Often,
6: textbooks just have a line saying, and then women were granted the right to vote that was absolutely not the case. Women were not granted anything. They fought extremely, extremely hard for this right. The fights over race. White
7: suffragists not only know that Jim Crow laws will keep Black women from the polls, they count on that being common
3: knowledge. And how this is about more than the past. It's about our present and future. This was an amazing, civil rights battle, and there are enormous lessons for today about how you make change
5: in a democracy.
4: You're just right how blind I've been. I know.
5: So join us on and nothing less from the Women's Suffrage Centennial Commission, the National Park Service, and PRX.
3: Subscribe now to hear our first episode on August 5th.
5: A word or not. Oh, and remember Joe? You sing? He came will. around. Will count.
4: I'll help you win the vote. Yes, I will. Thank you, Joe. We'll together soon, soon be, voters. be voters. Yes, yes we, we will. If you'll
6: all
5: vote yes at, at the polls, polls next poll. Poll.
0: From PRX. And now for our first story in our series.
3: Okay, so like a couple of years ago, if you were driving in downtown Chicago from the expressway toward Lake Michigan or walking down, you know, that road past the Auditorium Theater, you'd be on a street called Congress Parkway. And you wouldn't have thought much of it. But now when you turn onto Ida B. Wells Drive, you notice a new name on the block, and you'll wonder how she got here.
6: It's the first um, street name change in the city of Chicago in over 60 years. And it's the first street name in Chicago, in downtown Chicago, after any woman or any person of color. And so for Ida B. Wells to be both (laughs) African-American and female, um, I guess she's a twofer.
3: Standing on Ida B. Wells Drive, in front of the Harold Washington Library, which was named after the city's first black mayor, is Michelle Duster. She's Wells's great-granddaughter and a public speaker and educator, and she worked with the League of Women Voters and the city to get her great-grandmother's name recognized. When Ida B. Wells moved to Chicago at the age of 32, she was already an established activist in the fight for civil rights and anti-lynching as well as an investigative journalist and of course she also wanted to empower women and that meant giving them a voice and a vote in 1913 wells founded the alpha suffrage club which was the first suffrage organization for black women in chicago this emphasis on the importance of voting and her great grandmother's legacy was constantly with Duster when she was growing up.
6: I grew up hearing, never ending. People fought for this right. People died for you to have this right. And so I think there was always that emphasis on like let your voice be heard and make sure that you uh, participate in your own you know, civic engagement.
3: Wells was not alone. African American women suffragists were fighting for justice all over the country and had been for decades. And their stories tell us they had as much at stake in the struggle and sometimes more than white women. African American women are no different than any community
7: of Americans in that they see access to the ballot as a way to participate in the body politic and to enjoy power and influence around law and policy in the united
3: states that's a shared story that's martha jones she's a professor of history at johns hopkins university and the author of vanguard how black women broke barriers won the vote and insisted on equality for all
7: african-american women by the
3: 1820s are beginning to
7: ask pointed questions about their relationship to the body politic their relationship to power. They are leveling by the 1820s a critique of racism and sexism simultaneously. They are holding a high bar for the nation as a whole when they decry both racism and
3: sexism. And now in the centennial year, as we look back on suffrage history, we think there's a pretty high bar when it comes to being honest about the role of race and racism. This is more than a story about women. This is a story about civil rights. This is And Nothing Less, Episode 3. Truth is of no color.
7: The way Black women themselves is that their story doesn't begin in 1848 in Seneca Falls, New York. Uh, Black women don't participate in the Seneca Falls meeting, but they've already been for decades at work on their own fight for political
5: power. Speaking to us again is historian Martha Jones. The story, as she puts it, began well before 1848, not in traditional suffrage associations, but in anti-slavery societies, churches, and political party conventions.
7: And that campaign will not end in 1920. African-American women must continue a struggle for voting rights after ratification of the 19th Amendment, because, of course, Jim Crow laws are going to continue to
5: disenfranchise so many Black Americans, men and women. That's why when we talk about rights for women, we also have to talk about slavery. Virtually all of the early suffragists were abolitionists, though not all abolitionists were suffragists. Before the Civil War, white and Black suffragists and anti-slavery organizers worked together toward a common cause. Formerly enslaved people and free Black women like Harriet Tubman, Maria Stewart, and Sojourner Truth were active in women's rights circles. Another
3: famous abolitionist and formerly enslaved person who frequently spoke at women's rights conventions was Frederick Douglass. In fact, he spoke at Seneca Falls, living just a horse ride away in Rochester, New York. And while living there, he established his abolitionist paper, The North Star, in 1847. But he used it to do more than just denounce slavery. He also talked about equal rights for women and other oppressed minorities. In fact, the paper's masthead inspired today's episode, titled Truth is of No Color. The full line read, Right is of no sex, Truth is of no color, God is the father of us all, and we are all brethren.
5: So, before and during the Civil War, there was a lot to unite the circles of Americans seeking equal rights under the law. But by the end of the Civil War in 1865, nearly 20 years after Seneca Falls, new freedoms and new questions about who should have what rights sparked new debates. The 15th Amendment, proposed in 1869 by Republican lawmakers to make sure the right to vote could not be denied on account of race, was extended to men and only men. And suffragists had to choose between a win for some or a win for all. Congress decides
4: to endorse black male voting, but not female voting. Lisa Tatro is a history professor at Carnegie Mellon University. They propose, Congress does, the 15th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, one of the last and final Reconstruction Amendment. And in that, they say that the states may not discriminate in voting on the basis of race, but they
5: don't say on the basis of sex. Suffragists find themselves split over the 15th Amendment. And ultimately over race. If you remember, Susan B. Anthony said, I will cut off this right arm of mine before I will ask for the ballot for the Negro and not for the woman. She and Stanton faced a hard choice and decided to sever ties with the American Equal Rights Association and form the National Woman Suffrage Association.
4: I mean, it's a very ugly chapter. And it reminds us that just because you support the advancement of democracy for one group does not mean you support the advancement of democracy for all. And what will happen over the course of the suffrage movement's career, the kind of conventional movement that we think of, is they will continually sacrifice folks of color for the advancement of white voting rights. But Lisa Tetra reminds us... There were lots of suffragists who supported the 15th Amendment. And we have to remember that. The problem is we, we narrate this story from the vantage point of Stanton and
5: Anthony, and that also deeply skews our sense of the movement. In addition to Anthony's National Association, there was Lucy Stone's American Woman Suffrage Association, who supported the 15th. And these are just the white organizations. Black women and men are organizing in their own communities in support of the amendment. And according to martha jones for many african-american women the 15th amendment victory is their victory even if the vote is not theirs
7: african-american women are as involved in defending and realizing the complete potential of the 15th amendment as they are in realizing what becomes the 19th amendment that is to say they understand that the constitution needs to speak powerfully both to the problem of racism and sexism if they ever expect
8: to enjoy voting rights. I think one of the things that we should recognize is that Black men and women always had a knowledge and a sense of their own rights as citizens and asserted them as
5: fully as they could. Allison Parker is a professor of history at the University of Delaware.
8: After Black men won the right to vote, the black women participated in what were called colored conventions where blacks got together to talk about their priorities for the kinds of legislation that they thought were most necessary or the kinds of political movements that would mean the most to them and so even though they did not have the right to vote black women were part of those colored conventions and i think that's an important thing to recognize The other thing is that they participated in thinking about and debating questions about suffrage and about the role of the political
5: parties. This understanding that political power can't just be based on gender, and it can't just be based on race. It can't just be fought for in the courts or in the streets. It's all-encompassing. This is exactly what Ida B. Wells understood. We'll talk more about her and her fellow activist, Mary Church Terrell, in a moment on A Nothing Less.
3: Mind you, up until the late 1800s, there were two rival women's suffrage organizations, the National Woman Suffrage Association, led by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, and the American Woman Suffrage Association, led by Lucy Stone, among others. And mostly their division was over strategy. Stanton and Anthony were committed to a federal amendment, and Lucy Stone's camp wanted to take a state-by-state approach, But the other sticking point was race, and those divisions were ugly. But in 1890, they decided the only way they could achieve their ultimate goal, which was a vote for women, was to unite. And so you had one group, the National American Women's Suffrage Association, simply known as The National. while united it was still largely only a white organization so in black communities women were organizing and forming clubs of their own ones that would build powerful connections and influence
7: african-american women have by the early 20th century been working for half a century through this club model that is local organization and a national network
3: you remember historian martha jones
7: And it has proven effective, powerful, and it has built this really robust community of Black women activists. It is, for African American women, essential to a political vision that always is remaining rooted in the material circumstances of Black women, their families, and their communities. And the club model permits that kind of intelligence, that kind of insight to always be a part of club deliberations.
3: And Ida B. Wells is perhaps the embodiment of a club leader.
7: Ida Wells is the quintessential example of an African-American woman activist in the late 19th and early 20th century. Wells is such a ideal example because her politics are never one note
3: it's why we chose her image for our podcast she totally embodies the notion of and nothing less and many people who admire ida b wells who walk or drive down ida b wells drive think of her as primarily an influential anti-lynching activist or an ahead of her time journalist this formerly enslaved woman, born in Mississippi, was also there for the founding of the NAACP. And yet, people might not talk about her role in securing the vote. Even before 1920, Wells
7: helps us appreciate how the term suffragist just doesn't do justice to Black women activists who are, like Wells, anti-lynching advocates, civil rights advocates, club women, and voting rights advocates all at the same time. And this is the model. This is quite typical of the women of Wells's generation and beyond, who are nimble and versatile in their political vision and in their political activism.
3: Suffragists like Wells were nimble, as we hear, because, like their white partners, Black women linked the right to vote with a host of other issues. Suffrage meant education. It meant fair labor. It meant access to the press. And of course, it meant political power to pass laws against lynching and to break the corrupt machines that were destroying Black communities. For Black people, suffrage also meant racial justice. And while fighting for these rights, Black suffragists would have to deal with discrimination within their own ranks. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, particularly in the South, the mainstream suffrage movement not only accepted discrimination, but encouraged it.
7: There was this massive effort on the part of uh, powerful politicians to reassert white supremacy over Southern politics, and they had been driving Black
3: men from the polls through violence. Marjorie Sproul is a professor emeritus at the University of South Carolina. They had sometimes sort of coerced
5: them or somehow persuaded them to vote certain ways, in other words, control their votes. It was within this environment that another leader in the Black community also emerges, Mary Church Terrell. Like Ida B. Wells, Terrell was born into slavery. Her family was from Memphis, and the two actually knew each other as girls. Like Wells, by the time Terrell was a young woman, she had a strong belief in a woman's right to vote. And this sense of her right to vote was
8: an important step for her, because when she finally moved to Washington, D.C., and was living there, she was—
5: inspired to go and attend the national american women's suffrage organization allison parker is the author of an upcoming biography on mary church terrell called unceasing militant and she went to one of their meetings and
8: asked them if they would put on their agenda and create a resolution asking them to fight for black women's rights and for the protection of all african americans And Susan B. Anthony said, are you a member of this organization? And she said, no, I'm not. But I hope that you would see that our causes are linked. And this was a really interesting moment because Susan B. Anthony invited her to the podium and allowed her to put a resolution in favor of Black rights and civil rights protections into the agenda of that meeting. And They became friends after that point and
5: worked together on several occasions. Parker explains that Terrell's relationship with Susan B. Anthony represents this balancing act that many Black women activists had to achieve at the time.
8: And Susan B. Anthony also invited Mary Church Terrell, along with several other Black women, including Ida B. Wells, to stay at her home when she would invite them to Rochester, even though she also participated in a lot of racist rhetoric, and strategic decisions, she was a complicated person and was more likely to participate in acts of social equality than most white women at the time. And so this is something that made Mary Church Terrell always willing to consider her and other white women and women's white women's organizations as groups that she should work with even as she saw their flaws and saw when Black women were being excluded or insulted because she believed that as part of a minority, she had to do what she could to try to get buy-in from white women.
5: The anti-Black racism that had always run through the suffrage movement was on display at one of the most critical points on the road to the 19th Amendment, and both Ida B. Wells and Mary Church Terrell were there for it. This was the 1913 Women's Parade in Washington, D.C., organized by alice paul the founder of the national woman's party it was scheduled for the day before the inauguration of woodrow wilson this is a celebration of a new president and the first president from the south since reconstruction and the parade would reflect that the black suffragists were asked to march in the rear and if you look
8: at a movie like hbo's iron jawed angels for example miss paul Ida Wells Barnett from the Chicago delegation. You'll see that there is one incident of a black woman who tries to participate in the parade, and that black woman is Ida B. Wells. I'm told
2: you expect Negro women to march in a separate unit
8: at the back. And the way that the story goes is that she has a confrontation with the parade organizer, the Quaker suffragist Alice Paul, and she decides to disobey the segregation order and go on ahead and insert herself in her Illinois delegation.
5: We have one agenda, suffrage at another issue. If
8: we
1: don't stand up now, what happens to Negro women when you finally get the vote? They'll keep us out of the polling place any way they can. Other colored groups have agreed to the compromise.
8: not perfect, but we gotta be
5: practical. Dress up prejudice and call it politics. I expected more from a Quaker. I'll march with my peers or not at all. Parker says this story is true, but the way it's been told, you might think Wells was the only black woman who refused to be segregated. The truth, she says, is much more interesting. Alice Paul did indeed try to keep Black women out of the
8: parade because she wanted to court white Southern women and was interested in making it a national movement but did not think of Black Southern women's support as being included in that. So instead, what happened is that African American women who asked her if they could participate got a no and then eventually got a, well, you can do it as long as you stay in the back But they decided to organize to protest. So they sent many petitions and telegrams to the National American Woman Suffrage Association and basically said, you know, she can't do this. You can't have a parade where African-American women are segregated like that. And there was so much of a backlash that even up to the day of the parade, there were debates about this. And what happened was that on the day There were multiple places and sites of contestation where Black women
5: were asserting their right to be part of it. Mary Church Terrell was one of these women. She was enlisted to help marchers from the Delta Sigma Theta sorority from Howard University. That's a historically Black sorority. But they wanted to march with the groups of other college women, not to be segregated in the back. And then the National
8: Association of Colored Women was invited to join the New York delegation. All of the states were, from the beginning, marching in the back because that's what the processional chart meant. So technically speaking, Mary Church Terrell and the NACW marched at the back in the New York section. But it was certainly not in a segregated section, nor did they, quote unquote, agree to march in the back. And there are lots and lots of articles that say in white and black newspapers that talk about these fact that the march was, in fact, integrated and that black women were found throughout. So my hope has been that with this suffrage anniversary, we can start to tell this more interesting and complicated story. Complicated
3: indeed, especially when you think about the victory of 1920. By that summer, the suffragists had won 35 of the 36 states they needed in order to reach the necessary two-thirds majority required for a constitutional amendment. Looking at the political situation in the remaining states, they were left with one option that made the best sense, Tennessee. So what did this mean for the Black women in this fight? Tennessee, like other southern states, was a place where Jim Crow laws were enacted to make it almost impossible for Black men to vote. Literacy tests, grandfather clauses, poll taxes, and violence. What should be different for Black women? It wouldn't be, explains Martha Jones. White suffragists not only know
7: that Jim Crow laws will keep Black women from the polls, they count on that being common knowledge, because it permits them to make the case for women's suffrage in the southern states. The promise is that the 19th Amendment, in fact, will not change the political status of African American women, and that makes the 19th Amendment palatable for those who oppose Black voting rights generally, and certainly those who oppose the prospect of Black women voters after a constitutional amendment. Take the
3: poll tax, which required eligible voters to pay a fee before they could cast the ballot. In each state, a law like that would initially be written to only include men. And the goal was to keep African-American men, as well as poor Americans and other people of color, from voting. With the 19th Amendment, state lawmakers would make sure poll taxes would include men and women. And Black women in the South knew this. After the 19th Amendment was ratified, women of color in the South experienced racist policies that would keep them without full voting rights until decades later. Racist policies that the 19th Amendment did nothing to prevent or correct. And 100 years later, Martha Jones can't help but wonder what if. Historians don't like
7: really to play with hypotheticals, but I'll try this one.
2: You know,
7: what if suffragists in the 19-teens and 20s had held out and insisted that the only women's suffrage amendment that they would advocate for, that they would support, was one that promised all American women the vote or guaranteed women the vote without respect to race, color, previous condition of servitude. What if white and black women had linked arms and continued the campaign for women's suffrage and helped to turn this nation away from white supremacy early in the 20th century? For me, that is a powerful what if.
3: Next time on And Nothing Less, we hear about more women in communities who fought for a right to be heard.
4: Chinese immigrant women are not eligible for citizenship, and yet they still are advocating for suffrage. Why would they do this?
5: I'm Retta. And I'm Rosario Dawson. This was And Nothing Less from the Women's Suffrage Centennial Commission, the National Park Service, and PRX. This podcast was envisioned by WSCC Executive Director Anna Lehman with support from Kelsey Millay. The production team is Executive Producer Genevieve Sponsler, Producer and Audio Engineer Samantha Gatzik, and Writer and Producer Robin Lin. Original score by Erica Wong, with additional music from Epidemic Sound. The historical content used to create these stories was brought to you by the National Park Service. Teachers can download companion
1: lesson plans... What if...
0: What if you have heard the first of many engaging, educational, and encouraging stories about women, and therefore about civil rights. Frankly speaking, is our time and our space to help, heal, educate, and encourage each other into the best version of ourselves no matter where we are in the journey. You've been listening to Radio Fairfax, Fairfax, Virginia, on your TV, radio, excuse me, on your TV, computer. Look at me. I'm all back in the other century. Our mobile device, and we're webcast worldwide on the Internet at www.radiofairfax.org. I want to leave you with this. Your seat at the table is guaranteed. I look forward to the next time. Until then, remember, you are stronger than you feel. You are smarter than you think. You're more respected than you know and more loved than you can ever believe. Your time, your energy, your mind, the people who come into your life, they are all gifts, and they are infinite. They belong to you, and they belong to everyone else. I'm Tyra G. I want you to know I'm listening. I'm here for you, and I love you. Until next time. I know.